Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by The Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Okay, well, Psalm chapter 16. Psalm chapter 16. What a wonderful little psalm that's just packed full of stuff. So I'm reading in the New King James here. And it says, a mictum of David. Uh, and to the side, it says Psalm 56 through 60. Tell you more about that in a minute. But preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. I actually have that underlined because it's a great affirmation that um, God's not impressed with our view of our goodness. <laughs> my goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. I think God loved putting that in his word. I think he smiles when he thinks of individual saints like you serving the Lord, seeking his face. Pat Harper, she is the excellent one in whom is God's delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied. Well, whose sorrows shall be multiplied? Those who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer. I won't offer the kind of bloody sacrifices they offer of people, nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I hope you can testify to that tonight as you look back over your life, uh, the things that you wished had happened that didn't, the things that have happened that you wouldn't have led yourself that way. I hope you can testify that God has been good, that the lines have fallen to you in pleasant places. He's given you a good inheritance. Verse seven, I will bless Yahweh. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me when in the night seasons, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. And that's just a, a euphemistic way to talk about his soul and himself. He's rejoicing. Uh, what, uh, you know, my glory is just, his glory in and through me. My heart is glad. My flesh also will rest in hope. Verse 10 says, for you will not leave my soul in shale, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Verse 11, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Oh, there's so much that's neat in that Psalm. Well, mictum that we saw at the beginning, it's the title of six Psalms. So this one, 16, and then further on, getting over to the second book of the Psalms, Psalms 56 through 60. And unfortunately, we don't know much more about it than that. Uh, but if those Psalms are like this one, mictum means joy, you know, mictum means godly perspective, you know, uh, pretty cool. This Psalm, of course, is very well known because of verse 10. Verse 10 is quoted in the New Testament about the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah. And we're going to look at that when we get there. But I also find this psalm is so encouraging in general to anyone who loves God and leads people. We know David is the author, and David was a leader. And when you factor in all the roles he had as a shepherd king of Israel, 
who led men uh, in an army and then uh, led um, the nation, uh, led his home. Uh, I love the verse that says David went home to bless his family. And uh, so next time you go home, go in the doors and say, Honey, I'm home to bless you. Kids, I'm here to bless you, just like David did with his family, you know. So anyway, but let's look at the first thing there. Uh, this psalm is really about uh, David giving his personal, personal testimony of the joy he has in the Lord. So verses 1 and 2, a godly leader must delight in God, must delight in God. In verse 1, he says, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. And you're like, oh, here we go. We're only 16 psalms in, but we've had some ones like this already. Trouble and trust psalms. Help me out, God, for in you I put my trust. Here comes another trouble and trust psalm. But instead, after that petition there, he immediately directs himself to remember that God has blessed him despite his sinfulness. So verse 2, O my soul, you have said to the Lord, my goodness is nothing apart from you. Um. David's words go right along with Paul's understanding in Romans 3, right? And we've seen the psalm that Romans 3 builds on just before this in some of the earlier psalms. Uh, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Um, And uh, we think about Isaiah. I think it's Isaiah 64 where it says all uh, our righteousness are just filthy rags before God. Even when we try our best efforts, they're mixed with wrong motives And so they're like filthy rags before God. And uh, David here acknowledges, you know, um, you know, people call me good all the time. I'm King David. Look, there's good King David. He's such a better guy than Saul was and all these different things. And and, and David's quick to acknowledge before the Lord. No, no, I have no goodness apart from the Lord. And, you know, I, I don't know about you guys, but being a pastor, I oftentimes uh, get compliments um, you know, oh, you're doing this so good. That was such a good message, this, that, and the other, you know. And we do well to have a little bit of healthy um, ability to step back and go, okay, if what I've said is bless somebody, man, that's the Lord, you know, because <laughs> uh, I have no goodness apart from the Lord, both in the deeds I do, the things I say, etc. And we just want to deflect that glory back up to him. We often celebrate football players that do that. Uh, and uh, some of the really cool ones, you know, they, they'll do that in wins and losses, you know, when they win the Super Bowl, when they have a crushing defeat. And uh, we need to remember that as well. Like the great hymn, right? Nothing in my arms I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And, uh, you know, um, it's, it's so important to remember because, you know, if we're not careful, we'll uh, really... Um, you know, if, if we don't have this thought down, what happens is we turn into judges of others. I'm good. They're not. <laughs> and if I know that in my flesh dwells no good thing, if I know that my goodness is nothing apart from the Lord, then I can look and say, okay, ooh, I see my friend over here making some of the same mistakes I made. And it's not that I'm a better person than they are. Uh, it's that, you know, I've been there and I know that's a wrong way to head. And if I can come humbly to that person and share I'm more likely to help uh, win them and minister to them in a moment uh, that is there. Gospel math, gospel math. Most of you have heard me done this, but maybe not everybody. So you got to get this down in your head, right, George? Um, Danny Campbell was a big fat zero before the Lord saved him. So at salvation, the Lord started with zero in me. There was no goodness in me. 
Now, we speak of 10 being perfect, right? That person's a perfect 10. Well, there is no perfect 10 person, but Jesus is a perfect 10. And the Bible says if you're in Christ and he's in you, then 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So at salvation, not only did my sins get dealt with timelessly on the Christ, God the Father imputed the righteousness of Christ the Son to me. So I am a zero, but I've received a 10 into my heart and life. And in Christ, even though I don't look different on the outside, on the inside, everything's changed. My positional status before the Lord makes me a 10. So I'm not much in talking to try to help somebody improve their self-esteem. You know, the scripture does have the saints saying, no, I'm a worm and not a man. You know, in my flesh, there's no good thing. Uh, There's no goodness in me. Um, But ironically, when you improve your Christ esteem and you know who you are in him, when you go through Ephesians chapter one and see in verses three through 14 that you've been adopted by God, that you've been forgiven by him, that you've been chosen that he's predestined you before the foundation of the world to be in Christ and the blessings you're inheriting now, that you have every spiritual blessing as part of your future inheritance, that his Holy Spirit has taken up a residence inside you. Man, when you build yourself and rebuild your life around these truths, you feel like a 10. And Christ-esteem is so much better than self-esteem because we still lie to ourselves with self-esteem. We, we tend to, uh, you know, make ourselves out to be more than we are. So since I've been saved, uh, no one's accused me of having a poor self-esteem after a couple years in, and I really understood who Christ is. I hope that doesn't come across as any kind of cockiness, but instead of settledness in Christ, rest in Christ, I I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. So that, that helps you out. Now, I understand, let me just say this. There's also a bit of personality issues in there. The Lord wired me to be up, you know. Uh, I think uh, you say, well, I haven't thought much about the personality types and things like that. Well, just think about Winnie the Pooh, right? Um, Every one of us is one of those Winnie the Pooh characters. <laughs> I mean, I'm more like uh, Tigger, I know. I mean, you know, I just want to bounce and be up, you know. And, and uh, you know, my wife naturally is more like Eeyore. Or no, maybe it's Rabbit because she's a little grouchy. <laughs> I need to tape, roll this tape back here. But Anyway, so there's Rabbits, you know. There's uh, Winnie the Poohs. There's Eeyore. There's Piglet. Mrs. Mrs. P- uh, what was her name? Uh, anyway, uh, Oh, bother, you know, there's owl, you know, and we, we have these different personalities, you know. And so uh, Eeyore on his best day isn't going to look like Tigger, you know. And, and we have to factor that in. Some people are more prone to spiritual depression, uh, to um, hurting and, and having a hard time getting out of that hurt. But Christ esteem matters there too, you know. Uh, and good, rich friendships in the body of Christ matter there too. And I just feel led to say this for the sake of the people that we minister to and help, you know. Encourage people to stick with Christ. Encourage people to stick with the church. Uh, Stick with the relationships, you know, to stick with their need of having others who speak truth into their lives. Have you ever heard the testimony of uh, a man named William Cooper? C-O-W-P-E-R. William Cowper. Uh, You know some of his hymns. You may know God moves in a mysterious way, which is one of my favorites to, to, to line out and look at, but 
The big one is, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. That's him. That's William Cooper. Cooper was a lifelong melancholy person and several times did try to take his life. And he just had kind of a sad life, but he kept coming, writing poems, and he had good friends. One of his great friends was John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace and How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds and so many other great hymns and things. One of the very first hymnals that was ever produced was a collab between these two men. John said, you write half, William, and I'll write half. And William said, okay, you know, I don't know if I can write hymns or whatever and stuff. But anyway, there is a fountain filled with blood was in that hymnal. The only hymns, the only hymnal. Um, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, I think, was in that one. It was pretty big. Um, John Newton, I don't know if that's where Amazing Grace was or the others, but John Newton wound up writing 200 of them, and William Cooper wound up writing 60-something of them. If If I remember the story right, I may be off on some of the details, but what a great collab. And that friendship not only blessed the body of Christ, and these are the days before some medicine could have really helped a William Cooper, you know, maybe be a little bit more regulated, a, a regular sedative or something like that. You know, he, 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 he didn't know about those days yet. There was only wild highs and wild lows. And thank God, you know, for the way that God led him. And some amazing things happened uh, to this uh, man. The gospel math. So zero before Christ, a 10 in Christ, even the way it looks in different personalities. Now, I know for me, if somehow Christ could be taken away, can you do the math? So George, I was a zero before Christ came, a 10 in Christ. If somehow Christ could be taken away, Gary, what would be left? Zero. You'd have nothing all over again. That's what David's saying. All my goodness is in you. I'm just nothing without you, Lord. But in you, man, I got it made. Um, but the good news is Christ can't be taken away to the, from the believer. So we're a 10 in Christ, even when we do things that are unlovely and have setbacks. Uh, no goodness without him, perfect standing by faith. So a godly leader must delight in God and keep on telling himself what David does in verses 1-2. But then in verses 3 and 4, a godly leader should delight in God's people. God, godly leader should delight in God's people. Um, oh my goodness, we got teachers and coaches in here and people that lead different music things and men's ministry and women's ministry and all kinds of great stuff. Um, you know, um, man, the leader needs to lighten the people they serve. Um, it's kind of become fashionable, uh, for, um, cool young and middle-aged pastors to write books about how they love being a preacher and a servant of God, but they really don't like God's people. One guy wrote a best-selling book that basically said, I don't really like Christians. That's what, that's my, uh, thing. You know, and it's like, whoa, you know. Now, it's hard. I mean, you got more family members. Sometimes family members, you know, that crazy Aunt Ethel, you know, she really gets on your nerves and stuff. And when you're in the body of Christ, you're going to have some extra ones of those. But God knew that. He knew the church would be this wonderful thing that would uh, challenge us and help us grow where, I mean, if any of us got our way in marriage or in life and church and stuff, we'd be monsters, wouldn't we? Uh, we need to hear that's a horrible idea, you know. Uh, but 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 appreciate your heart, and so let's steer it this way. Um, and I think about how condescending, in a good way, God is to people. Right, the same King David. David says to God, "God, I'm going to build you a temple to live in." And God said, "Why would I need a temple?" <laughs> everything's mine. (laughs) In fact, that whole earth down there, that's just where I put my feet. It's my footstool when I'm leaning back on the couch up here in heaven. Why would I need a town? You know, 
Uh, but God said, I appreciate your heart, David. What you want to do is, 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 is have a way for people uh, to gather and worship. And you know that tent tabernacle thing just keeps moving around. It's part of what you want to have happen there in Jerusalem as, as, as the key of this beautiful country that is Israel, this country for God and stuff. And so God said, didn't need it. And I love how in Solomon's dedicatory prayer, <laughs> Solomon's still laughing about that. He says, God, you dwell in the highest heaven. You don't need a place, but you've let this happen. And we want to make the most of it, our chance, to, an opportunity to make the most of this. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is my delight. Now, have you ever been driving down the road and seen Hepzibah Baptist Church? No? See. You've seen Beulah Baptist Church, right? Have you seen a, a, a Hepzibah Baptist Church or anything? Never have? You never have. You don't drive around the back roads enough. <laughs> You'll eventually find a church that says Hepzibah Methodist or Hepzibah Baptist or something like that. Uh, Beulah Baptist. Beulah and Hepzibah actually come from the same passage in Isaiah. And the Hebrew words for the last phrase, in whom is my delight, are kal hepsibam. Kal hepsibam. That's essentially the same as Hepzibah the new name God will give to his people. And in fact, let's see if we can find that there. Isaiah 62. Turn over to Isaiah because um, I'm astonished that with all of his life's experiences and time on a motorcycle, Gary Reynolds has not driven by. He just doesn't remember doing it. He's going so fast. Isaiah 62. One of our members, um, was at a church How about that? How about that? We, we've had a Hepzibah Baptist among folks that have served here and then went on. Isaiah 62, verse 4. Here's what God says to Israel at a time when they felt really crummy. And of course, we always apply this to them first because it was written to them, spoken by their prophets. But by extension, it makes us think of God's love for his people that were in on through the church. But Isaiah 62, 4. Israel... You shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land any more be termed desolate. But you shall be called Hepzibah and your land Beulah, for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. Now, here's where, uh, does anybody here, I saw Vance had an ESV, but he left. Does anybody here have one of the newer translations? I'm using the New King James, but... Uh, Okay, read it in the NASB, George, 62.4. It will no longer be said to you forsaken, nor to your land will it any longer be said desolate. But you will be called, my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. Okay, so God had to judge his people. Isaiah the prophet says that... You know, God's not done with his people yet. Even though you feel forsaken, <laughs> you're going to be called Hepzibah. You're going to be called, my delight is in you. Even though you're going to be thought of in terms of desolate, and um, you're going to be called Beulah, which is married to God, basically married, married. Um, so that's where Hepzibah and Beulah both come from, and it's in that one verse, and that's why you drive by Hepzibah churches or Beulah churches or whatever. That's why I guess we sing Beulah Land. Uh, who's got the most music experience in here? Probably Donnie. Have, is there any song that incorporates Hepzibah in it that you know of? I know there's a I Will Raise My Ebenezer. Yeah, I don't can't think of anybody, anything that has that particular word, mm -hmm. but... That phrase, uh, whom is my delight, I'm yeah. sure there's 
something that's in there. Yeah. You know, I can't think of one. There's got to be somewhere, right? But yeah, I, I can't, at least not one that is still a, around regularly being sung, but there's probably in all the hymn writing that's ever happened, some reference there. And that's why it is. And that's why, uh, you know, different English translations, uh, it all came out of the Hebrew and the Greek. So different translations are helpful in different ways, but sometimes uh, you see that and go, oh, here's a place where the King James or New King James helps me understand something that uh, is, is usually translated to delight or marry just in the newer translations. Okay, um, so David says he delights in God's people. The saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Um, so before you, uh, you know, we talked about how all our goodness is in the Lord, right? But before you leave here tonight or before the week's over, go to a saint that you appreciate or maybe write him a note this week and say, you're one of the excellent ones, Ray. You're one of the excellent ones, man. You're one of the saints dwelling on the earth. Um, and uh, David did that with his people. And we ought to take the time to say, I'm just thankful for your, uh, what, what Christ is doing in and through you. Uh, well, Bev Terry is uh, like that to me too. And uh, well, all of you are in different ways and stuff, but just uh, the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. That's contrasted in verse four with um, those who are engaged in idolatry. Those who are, uh, you know, and David's, listen, David's preaching here. Uh, he's like, I'm the king. This is my land. I love the people in the land that are doing what God wants us to do. But <laughs> there are some of you out there who even in Yahweh's land don't worship Yahweh. You've gotten off worshiping the Baals or the Molechs or the Astros. I'm not even going to name them all. They all have in common they're, not, they're false gods. They're idols that people make with their hands and owe oh, the things they ask us to do. And, and look how vivid he is here. He, he says, they hasten after another god. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer. David's having the people consider what God demands of somebody versus what these idols demand of them, right? He's saying, what does God demand? First of all, we get to worship him. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. And if we do what he says, we'll be the best kind of ourself we'll ever be. If we're the kind of people that don't lie, steal, cheat, you know, uh, you know, uh, stay faithful to our wedding vows, all the different stuff. If we do all that, we'll have that excellent life. In contrast, what is... Molech asking you to do and Baal. One of the things Molech's asking you to do is have your children pass through the fire to offer up your kids' blood, right? And that's what he means by that uh, when he says, um, their drink offerings of blood I will not offer. I'm not going to offer uh, a, a bloody sacrifice of a human the way those are talking about. And they had their sacrifice, sacrifices to bring, but that's specifically what he's talking about here. I'm not even going to put their names on my lips, whether it's Baal, you know, or Molech or whatever. And of course, whenever Israel talks about the high places, um, you know, it was these places where these kind of idolatrous worships went on. That's why we're going to come to Psalm, uh, a Psalm up here in not too long, uh, where it says, Mine eyes look up upon these hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. And uh, what he has in mind there was they like to put these high places up on top of the hills where everybody could see them. And as the psalmist is walking, he's like, this is Yahweh's land. But there is an idolatrous 
thing there that's basically to the god of war or whatever these different gods were. And we think about, oh, there's, there's that, uh, you know, there's Caesars coming to town, you know. Wow, the buckle of the Bible belt, right? But here we go, we got a casino coming in and uh, celebrating vanity and, and uh, greed and gain and, and in a way that uh, is not what you've earned but what is taken from others. And, uh, or for you to win, somebody's got to suffer, you know, and that sort of thing. And so David's thinking about that. Man, in the land, the saints are the excellent ones. And anybody that doesn't get in on what God can be to them, what Yahweh can be, is just... Those are hastening after other gods. It's not pretty. And those gods ask them to do things, squander their money, uh, and get involved in sexual immorality and other stuff, and not good, not good. So others may have divided allegiances, but David is pressing himself to delight only in God and in God's people. Verses 5 and 6, a god leader should delight in God's call on their lives. So verse 5, O Lord, you're the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Whenever they talk about inheritance, they're thinking about the time that, um, that Israel uh, divided up the land and one tribe got this and one tribe got that and it was further subdivided. The Levites um, were living among the peoples in the different cities and were going to help with their justice system and they were going to help rotate in and among them the Aaronites were going to be the priestly line and stuff like that. And so they each had an inheritance, a lot that fell to them, a portion that God and Yahweh had given them to take care of. It was serious enough that the year of Jubilee said, at the end of 49 years, if you've squandered away sometime, it has to be given back to the family that it came from because there's not going to be these guys that have everything and these guys that have nothing. So it's going to reset in the year of Jubilee and stuff like that. Israel almost never actually practiced that law, and so they did have extortion like the other nations had. They did have land being taken and never gotten back to the originals. They did have that going on. So they had that kind of greed in the midst of those that were content with what they had. David says, you're my portion and my cup. You maintain my lot. So he recognizes God's sovereignty over what he's been given. As king, he's got some perks. He's got the king, uh, kingship. Uh, he leads the nation. Um, they had been warned about kings are going to get a big head and they're going to take on extra wives. They're going to take on your sons to be in their army and different things like that. Uh, but um, So some of that's uh, something that David would have to deal with. Verse 6, I love it, says, The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places, Yes, I have a good inheritance. I sense a certain amount of contentment there. Others were seeking inheritance in ungodly ways, but David thanks the Lord for being his inheritance and what he has blessed David with. And I translate that to God's call on a person's life. Um, it is good to have ambition, uh, especially if you let the Lord steer it and have godly ambition. It's not wrong for a successful coach to want to coach even higher up or at a different place. Um, you know, uh, but at some point we wind up chasing human accolades versus accepting that God has a pretty good gig for us where we are. He's got us here for such a time as this. And then the years of service pass. Uh, and until he clearly calls us on, we serve our hearts out there. David's kind of saying that. It's good to be the king of Israel. Well, David, Israel's just a little country. Think about all them big countries below you like Egypt. And no, I don't want to be king of Egypt. I'm king of Israel, you know. And this is God's special place. 
We are a beacon, a lighthouse to the nations. And it's good to be the king of Israel. It's good. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Inside David's fence lines was all the fertile, watered, and productive land he needed. And I hope you can say that. Or as the way Paul said it, I've learned the secret of being content in all circumstances I'm in. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Doesn't mean Danny Campbell can dunk a basketball. You know, haven't been able to ever. We'll never be able to do it. I could probably do one off a trampoline, but then I'd break my legs coming down, you know, or something like that. Um, I can do it when the basket's lowered and stuff like that, but that ain't a real dunk, you know. That's not the 10-foot dunk, Um, you know. But uh, what it means is we can do all that God has called us to do through Christ who gives us strength. If he's called you to stay in a difficult situation, he'll give you the strength to do that. If he's called you to have a difficult conversation, he'll give you the strength to do that, et cetera, all the way through. So there's a call in our lives, and we need to be content with God's leading. Um, what's the statement that means hitherto the Lord has, has led me? Speaking of old Hepzibah and Beulah-like statements, it's not coming to me right now. Does anybody know it? There's another phrase like that, and it basically is hitherto the Lord has led me. Is that what Ebenezer's all about? Um, Ebenezer means heap of stones, I think. So it's uh, that I will raise my Ebenezer. I'll I'll remember God. Anyway, we'll have to check that out. Um, A godly leader trusts Christ's leading. So not only has he got you where he wants, but also in what he wants you to be about and do. So verse seven, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. Do you want God's counsel? David was thankful that God had led him. I love the portions when you read in David's life where he says, uh, it says, David went and inquired of the Lord. Lord, you want me to kill some more Amalekites for you? Yeah, go do that. You know, they're, they're, I, got a, I got a beef with them going all the way back, you know, because uh, of uh, previous sins and stuff like that. Uh, Lord, do you want me to, uh, sometimes it was, not, hold on, don't go in, you know, just wait a little bit, and then God would give the word, and those victories would be won. David was a warrior, and so he was asking God's insight on when to and when not to. Of course, let me just be careful to say we're not warriors in the physical sense like that. We're in these days of new covenant, but we understand that uh, Israel had a special place and David was right to defend against Israel's foes and to uh, deal with uh, things that needed to be dealt with as time went along. That's the prerogative of a king. Um, I love how he says, my heart also instructs me in the night seasons. So usually in the night seasons, you're winding down, right? Uh, now, David didn't have TV to watch, you know, or those things. He couldn't check his Facebook. Uh, but at the end of a day, just him and God, either in the palace or him and uh, God in the cave um, when he was on the run from his son and guys like Saul before that, um, you know, David would, uh, as he's winding down, some of the best thoughts God would give him about what he needed to do next were given during that time. That happened to me this past weekend. I just needed some wisdom related to um, looking at some uh, documents. And uh, I know Elizabeth's always praying for me for wisdom and guidance and stuff like that. But I just, you know, it was was, uh, past Saturday. And I just, I lacked wisdom. And uh, I said, um, Lord, you tell me to ask when I need wisdom, and I, it's been such a tiring time with all these deaths. Um, you know, I, I really felt like, uh, you know, um, 
about early January, I'd be fully caught up and ready to keep leading the church forward, you know, after we lost the executive pastor position and stuff like that. And, um, but then the funerals came. And I mean, you know, I'm at my best when I work 50 hours a week and I've been working 60 hours a week and it's just about to settle down, but then the funerals came. And so, you know, I'm at a good place now, 50, you know, just to, to work about what's right without uh, wearing myself out. Keenly aware that some of my predecessors had major health events in their late 50s. And I'm 55 and don't want to have one of those, you know, so trying to take care of myself and need to do even better with diet and stuff. But I just did what James 1 says, uh, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives, especially if you're not double-minded. And you know, you... So I did. I asked God, and, and God gave me just the wisdom I needed, and it was very powerful. And I thanked Elizabeth when I saw her next because uh, she was in another part of the house. Thank you for praying for me because it just came in. And David says, I'm so thankful the Lord gives me counsel, and my heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I mean, I got, I think this is the best way to say it, I got 10 hours of work done in an hour as far as mental clarity. And, and, and God did that. And I'm so thankful for that. Thank you all, too, for praying for me. Maybe one of you was praying for me at that exact moment, and I'll hear about it afterwards. I love Philippians 4. I quoted this morning, right? It was in this morning's message. Uh, be anxious for what? Nothing. <laughs> but in everything, do what? Give thanks and pray, right? And uh, present your request to God. And, uh, you know, having given it to him, trust him. Trust him to guide. Trust him to answer yes or no or wait. And he does. And so we don't have to worry. We can put it to God. And David expresses that confidence here. It's pretty cool. I like how he says it in verse 8. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. And I think about Paul getting direction in Acts 16 where the Holy Spirit forbade him to go one direction to get Paul to where God wanted him to be. Um, Paul's praying, hey, I'm going to want to go on over. I want to go up into Asia Minor. It makes sense. You know, it's, it's perfect. Uh, I've reached the bottom part of the, the province and I'll go up to the top part now and go all the way up there toward the Black Sea. And God's like, nope. He forbade him. Kept moving him several times, and finally he wound up going over to Macedonia, having the vision, going over to Macedonia, and all the great things that happened because of that. Pastor Charles Wilson reminded us of a few of those things last week. And then we get to this point, godly leaders' joy will continue to increase throughout eternity. Verse 9, look how cool it is. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also rest in hope. My soul rejoices. And again, we think of the perspective. We talked a little bit about this morning. Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, then we get to verse 10. He says, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You won't leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Uh, that's a beautiful verse. And certainly we get in David's first part of that statement where he says, you won't leave my soul in shale. He seems to have an understanding that there's life beyond this one. Like Job said, I know my Redeemer lives and I, even after my body's destroyed, in other words, after I die, I'm going to be in a new body. I'm going to see Christ on the earth. I'm going to see my Redeemer on the earth. Job 19, 24 through 27 is where you get that. So Job, one of the most ancient characters in the scriptures, is looking forward to a time after his current life 
when he's going to be in a body, see Christ in a body, live for him, with him forever on earth. Pretty cool. We're going to get to Psalm 37 that talks about how the righteous will inherit the land, but the wicked won't be remembered on the land. Israel had this sense of one day getting to be in the land with their Redeemer, with their God. And so the first part of this, you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Sheol was the Old Testament way of speaking of the place of where all the dead went. Uh, the equivalent in Greek is the word Hades. And so it looks clear when you read about Sheol in the Old Testament and Hades in the New that all people, when they died in Old Testament days, went to Sheol to a compartment of rest for the godly and a place of already confinement for the wicked. And then in the deepest recesses of whatever this place is, there was also a place where demonic angels uh, were kept, called the abyss and stuff like that, you know. Is it all below us? We don't know. You know, it, it could be language for, you know, I mean, we could pull back this dimension right here and, whoosh, and right before us be all of our loved ones and the angels with God and, and, and some similar, another dimension after that is all the other stuff, you know, and stuff. We've been trained to think of it as up and down, but who knows, you know, um, that, that may be just to condescend to our understandings. But, um, but it also seems clear that after Christ's resurrection, and that from now on for believers to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So it looks like one of the things Christ did on what we call Silent Saturday. Uh, so he died on a Friday. He uh, was in the ground on a Saturday, rose on Sunday. And it looks like one of the things that was happening was uh, that he went to uh, Sheol slash Hades and he stood right in the middle of the two compartments, so to speak. And he basically, uh, according to Peter, he preached to those there. He basically said, look, those of you who did not trust God and his promises, you still need to wait for the final judgment. But all you who are my excellent ones, come with me. Come with me. And, you know, they, they are with him in glory now, and we're going to join them when we die or when we get raptured. It's so neat to think about and stuff. So, but, so the first part, you won't leave my soul in shale, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. If it's still speaking of the grave, and, um, and we think it is, how does the second part not go with the first part? Is that talking about the resurrection? Yeah, we're pretty sure David's body did go in the ground and saw corruption, right? Uh, so God won't leave his soul, his soul in Sheol, but did his body corrupt like other bodies corrupt? Well, that's what Peter uses this for. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2 when Peter's preaching about this because it's kind of neat. Um, and then Paul uh, in Acts 13 refers to the same thing. So both of the great uh, apostles use this in their preaching and speaking. Um, so star of the day there to Alan because he nailed that point pretty good. Um, so Acts 2, you're in this Pentecost message that Peter brought. And uh, verse 24 says, talking about Jesus, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Verse 25 of Acts 2. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh 
uh, also rest in hope. For you will not allow my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Now look what the, uh, how Peter exposits that in verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, as great a guy as he was, that he's both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on this throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. You know what David's saying? We, we, we know about David's tomb. <laughs> Yes, who's in David's tomb? David. <laughs> the body's there awaiting the final resurrection, right? You know. Uh, and he said, so this had to be about somebody else. And there are Jewish scholars, too, that recognize this to be something about the future Messiah. And so these references make us justified in calling Psalm 16 a messianic psalm. So your fill in the blank is messianic. And tell um, Tyler and Ixa not to get excited there. It's not messy, as in Lionel Messi. It's messianic, referring to the Christ Jesus. So, so this psalm's pretty great already, but what a wonderful verse to end with. So we're almost done here, but we have to rejoice in verse 11, where David says, you will show me the path of life. David probably couldn't fully anticipate yet that the Davidic covenant meant that the path of life would be Jesus his great, 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 whatever grandson who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So David must have been delighted in heaven when he realized the path to life was a future descendant of his, this Messiah that was coming. In your presence is full is fullness of joy. Doesn't that statement fill your heart with joy? In your presence, Lord, is fullness of joy. You want joy? Get close to Jesus. You'll get some of that joy now. Uh, you'll get full joy later on. Look, and how about this? At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Isn't it sad we live in a day when so many reject Christ for pleasure now? But oh, the pleasures to come for those who know and serve the Lord. Think about God's pleasure. Pleasure without sin. Pleasure without guilt. Pleasures that don't fade. Pleasures forevermore. Uh, so I'm going to end by just talking to you a little bit about John Piper's teaching on Christian hedonism. So a hedonist is somebody that pursues pleasure. So by definition, Christians are not hedonists because we're pursuing God and we want to find our pleasure and joy in him. Nevertheless, John Piper became famous in his book, Desiring God, by talking about Christian hedonism. And you know why he did that? And it's going to help some of you as we close out tonight. Because his teaching on this is right, and it's important for us to try to win people uh, to Christ with his teaching, and I've seen it done. So how many times have you might, maybe even yourself said, God's not so much concerned about our happiness as about our holiness? That statement's true, but Piper challenged it, and we can help people as we challenge it too. In other words, why? And all Piper was doing was representing what Jonathan Edwards taught to people now and in the last 20, 30 years. Jonathan Edwards was big on delighting in God. And he said, so here's Christian hedonism. Um, every person on earth wants what's best for themselves and wants to experience pleasure. 
They want to be happy. Our problem, and C.S. Lewis did some good teaching on this is too, our problem is we don't now know how to be everlastingly happy. So we choose things that can only make us temporarily happy and not fulfill us like God's joy can, right? So there is a distinction between joy and happiness. That's correct. But telling people that God doesn't want them to be happy uh, oftentimes just makes them very mad and they go away. And we haven't necessarily done a good connection as people saying, listen, God does care more about what's going to make you your best than anything you can come up with. Your problem is you think that's going against faith in God and going against the things the Bible says is the only way to achieve that. But because I want Danny Campbell to be happy, what I've discovered is that if I turn to God and do what his word says, it's going to make me happier in the long run than any choice I can make that would be against faith in God and against his commands. Your problem is you're setting yourself, your sights too low and too now versus everlasting happiness and joy in the Lord. And so that's why I call it Christian hedonism because he's basically saying, you know, everybody is thinking of their happiness. Our problem is we pursue it in things that aren't Christ, things that aren't his word and his teaching. And so we are setting ourselves up to fail. And so... A Christian hedonist, this Piper used to get us to shocked into thinking about this, was exactly what David says here. In your presence is fullness of joy, and your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So every time I say no to sin, I'm making a decision that will help my everlasting happiness and joy all the more. That makes sense? Can you get it? Um, and... Uh, Maybe for those that heard that for the first time, you push back a little bit against it and stuff. But I've seen people's eyes going off. You know, they're just, I, I, the light bulb is lighting up in their head when they think, yeah, um, God made me. He's my creator. He knows what's best for me even more than I know myself. And so, and then he died to save me. And so if I have faith in him and I reconnect and re, rediscover his purpose and plan for my life as it's in the word, then I am making decisions that are ultimately going to make me happier than all the decisions I've ever made to try to pursue my own happiness apart from Christ. And that does translate to our better word, the word joy, that's not circumstantial, right? So I think that's a good way to say that. And as I've said that to people, you know, I too have seen light bulbs go off, you know, because, uh, you know, I mean, who wants to walk around with a somber face all day long, right? You know? We really need to take seriously John 10, 10. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. Eternal life is guaranteed forever. Abundant life is more now as my joy knocks over bad circumstances as I just keep on embracing whatever God's got for me, even if it means tough circumstances because of the joy that's in my heart and life. Or as David said it, you're going to show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joys and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So many reject Christ for pleasure now, but that's really sad because they're not going to get true happiness. Instead, they're going to get nothing but sorrow. Oh, the pleasures to come for those who know and serve the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. 
To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.